Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy BespokeCast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. Welcome back to BespokeCast. We're thrilled to have you here with us in 2018, our first episode of the new year after a nice long holiday break. And this week we've got a special guest uh, who comes to us from Twitter. Uh, Tracy, aka at Chai Girl, is our guest. That's C H I G R L. Uh, she is a little bit different from past guests that we've had. She trades for her own account. Uh, she's very focused on intraday trading as opposed to longer term sort of approaches, but she's also got a really good understanding of some markets from from a uh, longer term perspective um, and oil is one of her focuses. So we're really excited to talk to her today and get her perspective on the markets. Tracy, welcome to BespokeCast. Thank you so much and thank you for having me on. And you're joining us today from Montreal in Canada, right? That is correct. Always good to have someone who's in, I know you're not Canadian, but always good to have some Canadian content on the podcast being from British Columbia myself. Oh, there you go. <laughs> so you started out in the industry in Chicago. Um, we were just talking about before we started recording. Uh, can you give us a little bit of background, um, how you got into the industry and, and how you sort of started down the path you're on today? Sure. Um, actually, I was living in Los Angeles um, and um, I was in sales at the time. I was selling uh, medical grade plastics and um, I it was a great job. Uh, I had a I had a good time, uh, sort of. But I kind of decided I hit a point in my career where I really wasn't happy doing what I was doing anymore, and I wanted to make a change. So I literally quit my job one day and um, moved to Chicago. I didn't know anybody. I had never been there in my life, and um, went and knocked on doors at the CBOT to try to find a job. That's quite a change. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really how I started started my career, actually. So it's kind of my second career. You just literally walked up to people's offices and said, hey, I'd like to work in the industry. Can you give me a job? Yeah, pretty much exactly what I did. <laughs> and what sort of um, entry level stuff did you find? Did you were you booking trades or? Yeah. So my my first job that I got that I basically had to beg for, which anybody off the street could have gotten um, at the time, was basically working for um, like uh, at, at futures options brokerage. Um, and it was a complete boiler room, literally making 400 calls a day, trying to ask people for money to trade uh, options on futures. And um, at the time, there weren't a lot of women in the industry. So um, I was kind of a hard sell, but uh, I ended up getting a position there and ended up being the top person there. And Did you find once you got in the door that the sort of, you know, the barrier to women being in, in the industry went away or did it get harder or did it get just a little bit easier or how did that, how was that angle for you? I think it all depends on kind of how you approach it. You know, my personality is, you know, such that and my performance was such that I think if your performance is good and your, and your personality is 
um, sort of geared towards being able to uh, put up with, you know, whatever they throw at you because they do, you know, it's, especially if you're new in a, in any job, right. You, you have a problem, but if you're a woman in this job in a kind of environment where you're the only woman in the office, um, you know, you kind of have to go in there exerting some sort of, you know, confidence and that sort of, you know, I'm not going to take any BS kind of attitude. Yeah, totally. And I mean, knowing you for years now on Twitter, you definitely don't take any BS. So I can see how that would have been helpful for you. Um, so you start off in a boiler room. You end up doing quite well there. Um, what was your sort of next step? Because you're now in a very different place in your career. So so what happened next? Yeah, so what happened next is then I got a job um, at, at a better company. Um, and I was selling managed futures. And then that kind of led to uh, one of the top brokerages in um, all of Chicago working there. And from there, I very quickly, I was only there a few months actually, I very quickly got uh, offered to work on the floor for um, one of the top traders on the floor. In what products? And so, uh, <clears throat> well, it was right after 2008. So he was in Fed funds. But since interest rates went away, <laughs> um, he actually had moved to the grains and bonds. So I was uh, working in the grain room and the bond room running a trade desk there. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, mention, too. Of course, before the crisis, the Fed funds market was actually fairly robust and liquid. And now, because of how QE worked, there isn't really a Fed funds market. So euro dollars are still really liquid and active. But Fed fund futures themselves are almost a dead market at this point. So that's just an interesting aside there, I guess. Um, so grains and bonds, but you now focus more on, from what I see, um, oil and S&P. So um, did you develop experience in other products that just crossed right over to where you're more focused now? Or was it uh, more of a thing where you where you learned other products after spending some time in, in interest rates and ag? It was actually um, it, how I got interested in oil to begin with in the energy markets, and this is the truth, is it was when I was working at the boiler room, it was my first winning trade. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone remembers that one, right? Right. So, and, and, you know, obviously it was for for a client, but um, it was my first winning trade. And so after that, I just became obsessed with, you know, the oil market. However, you know, at that point in my career, since I was just starting, I was willing to take any position that I can't could to just, you know, kind of move up the ladder. Um, with the ultimate goal of obviously, you know, trading for myself. And so you just kind of kept that interest on on the backside and and um, always you know, nurtured yeah. it. So I'm yeah. So I was you know that's always, and mostly you know obviously when I was working at brokerages, um, I would tend to get clients that were interested in energies and things like that. The experience on the floor, you know, was an incredible experience. Even though I was kind of there uh, towards the end when, you know was an added heyday, um, but it was definitely an invaluable experience. And I, you know, I got to learn a lot about what went on uh, sort of in the back end. What are some of the biggest differences between the world on the floor and the world we're in now, which is entirely electronic? Well, I mean, I think, you know, mostly from what I can tell is, you know, when things are trading electronic, obviously the spreads are tightened way up, especially in, in options. Um, and it's not 
I mean, there's manipulation in every in every market. There's still manipulation even electronically. But um, on the floor, you know, we used to call down to the floor, or you know, we used to trade for institutional clients. I worked for a, uh, a broker, a floor broker that was uh, institutional client based. So we were, you know, we uh, had orders for hedge funds and banks and whatnot. Not not sort of smaller accounts. But the reason that we got these accounts is because you know, electronically at the time, spreads were wide open. They couldn't get, you know, we could make markets for people. We could give them a, a better entry than what they would get on screen or from anywhere else. And that's why people used to go to the floor, right? In other words, the floor provided a kind of liquidity that doesn't that doesn't exist on screens. Doesn't exist, correct. And does that liquidity exist now on screens or has the market just completely shifted to the point where, okay, now you're never going to be able to do a certain size um, through brokerage. You're always going to have to block it or you're always going to have to break it up over a longer time or into smaller size. I mean, I think that's sort of a, like a give and take. I mean, I think, I mean, there's still market makers out there um, for options and options wise that will give you, you know, that will but you have to be trading in size. And like when I say size, I mean, you know, not a hundred lots. I'm talking, you know, 5,000, 10,000, things like that, that, you know, there's definitely still market makers for that, that kind of end, but for, you know, regular people trading, <laughs> um, you know, what's on the screen, it's on the screen and kind of that's what you're going to get. When did you decide to make the move away from working for somebody else and towards working for yourself? Well, I think it just, you know, I finally felt like I got enough experience and was running a desk. I kind of understood how everything worked. So from that point, you know, I decided that it was time for, you know, I wanted to trade. Right. So I got, uh, so I got a job with a prop firm and um, that's kind of how I started um, my trading because, you know, uh, they give you kind of sort of a guidance and they teach you a little bit about how they want you to trade and things like that. And obviously um, as a new trader, the big bonus about that is that you're, you know, if you don't have the funds to trade how you want to trade, they're going to provide the funds for you. The downside is obviously you have a commit, you have a split in what your earnings are, but it's a good spot for new traders that don't necessarily have the capital behind them to start a new account and that also need a little bit of discipline because you have somebody there you have a risk manager there that will shut you down immediately and say what are you doing <laughs> right and you still see that today i think you know i know a number of guys on finance twitter that either got their start um trading equities through um uh prop shops or are currently at prop shops and you know especially for younger folks that don't have a big capital base it seems to be like uh you know still a pretty viable entry into the industry and just developing a track record and understanding the markets you're looking at definitely definitely how long were you at that prop shop for just a couple of years or so i was there for um a little over a year and then um at that point you know i felt that i was kind of ready to branch out on my own. And um, at that time, I had enough capital to start my own account. And then the rest is history. Good. Well, and then here um, I am. Yeah, here we are. That brings us all the way to the day. So that, that sort of recaps the career history <laughs> nice and neatly. Right? Yeah. Um, so as we mentioned earlier, you also decided to move to Montreal. Um, 
just before we you know talk a little bit more about your trading style it'd be interesting to hear how that came about and and why you moved from one of the coldest uh american winters to a very cold canadian winter (laughs) um i mean it started out as a business opportunity uh it was a collaboration with um another company so um so i moved up there for that I moved up here for an op- uh, work opportunity. It's cool. Uh, there, you know, you don't hear very many people that are doing finance-related stuff in Montreal. I mean, I, I know there is an active community up there, but uh, down here in the states, we don't hear that often. So it, that's it's pretty cool. But it's true. I mean, you know, the Montreal Exchange is a very old and well-known exchange. You know, obviously they don't have floor trading and things like that they did before, but you know, there's still a, a pretty large trading community here. Not only just in uh, Canadian markets, but U.S. markets as well. Absolutely, Canadian investors are good at the at the old crossover trick coming down south. We um, uh, don't see as much people going north, but it definitely does happen. Our, our former guest on our podcast was Mark Cahotis, who uh, has obviously been involved in uh, being short a lot of Canadian companies, and but you do see a lot of uh, people coming south too, so kind of an interesting connection there. Um, so yeah, it'd be great to talk a little bit about your trading style. I mean, you come from a very, uh, I, I would say, short-term oriented kind of background if you're talking about execution or doing stuff um, in futures markets with a sort of a CTA type approach, um, if not an actual CTA. Um, necessarily. So, um, w- what sort of time frame are you typically op- typically operating on a on a trade you might do? Well, I actually have a, how I operate is I actually have two separate accounts. So I have a swing account, and then I have a day trade account. Um, most of the things I post on Twitter are uh, more geared towards the shorter shorter term time frames. Um, but I do have a, a, a separate account for a swing account. So you know. Um, Shorter term timeframes could be anywhere from an hour to a day. And then swings can be anywhere from a week to a month. And are both of those uh, accounts driven a lot by price or, or I mean, obviously, if you're operating in under a day timeframe, the price is almost going to be exclusively what you're looking at or some sort of technical indicator. So, yeah. So uh, obviously, when I'm trading uh, day trading, it will be more uh, on a technical level, obviously, based on this that. You know this level, this you know, my secret sauce of what I'm looking at during the day. Um, but if I'm trading like a swing trade, I would say then sort of more more of the fundamental picture comes into play. So it's you know technicals for your entry, but based on a little bit more fundamental background of what I think is going on in the market kind of two different approaches. Do you ever find yourself thinking like, okay, I like this particular asset, you know, let, hypothetically just, you know, front month crude futures. Like I like future, you know, crude futures um, on the long side on a slightly longer time frame, but I want to be short them intraday. Do you ever like have instances like that or is it is it something that- Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely all the time. And that's kind of why um, I have two separate accounts because um, having two separate accounts, it allows you to, so, Say I was, you know, long biased and crude on a swing trade, right? But I'm short-term biased on a day trade. Well, you can't trade against yourself, basically, on one account. So having two separate accounts, I can be long from wherever, um, but have it, and then tra- kind of trade against myself, quote-unquote, 
um, in a shorter term time frame. And do you ever do, do you ever use different instruments, um, you know, intraday other than just the, the futures? Like, are you ever using options or something like that on a relatively short time frame, or are you um, just trading the, the future itself? Oh, no, absolutely. I use spreads and I also use, I use a lot of options as well. Asset wise, do you, are you pretty much going anywhere? I mean, if you're to me, you know, sort of the way I would think about it off the, off the cuff is, well, an intraday market, like it, it can help to know the fundamentals and that sort of thing and the catalysts and so on and so forth. But, you know, price action is price action. So I can kind of take that anywhere. Is, is that sort of how you view it? Or is it, is it something that right. you have to be more familiar with a market, something you, you know, come closer to specializing in to be able to trade it effectively intraday? No, I think to, to trade any product, I think effectively intraday, really, um, you, if you have a solid base of, you know, the technicals and technical understanding, then I think you, you know, you should be able to technically, there's that word again, um, you should be able to look at a chart and say, you know, I think this is going this way or this way. And granted, every product sort of has its own personality and levels that they like better, levels you, that you'll see retraces and things like that intraday. Um, but, you know, certainly the basic technical foundation, you should be able to use that to trade any product intraday. I, I guess it's just where you find your comfortability with a product and how much you, you know, that's why, you know, I primarily focus on, you know, I can only trade two products at a time. That's just my personal thing. A lot of people are trading. I, I see on Twitter, a lot of people are trading, you know, 10 15 products at a time. I personally can't do that. So I think that, you know, it just really depends on your comfortability level and how much you can focus on and how comfortable you are trading the product that you're trading. I think there is a thing too, you know, I, I see folks on Twitter who really genuinely don't care about the narrative or the data or the fundamentals behind an asset and they'll just go anywhere and trade it so whether it's cryptocurrencies or spot fx or you know commodity futures or etfs or whatever they'll just go wherever the price action is is moving quickly right. um but of course that trading style doesn't always work um you know, for everybody. So it, it, it does sort of vary, I guess. Would, would you say that that's how, you know, that applies to you? Like you just, you can't just do what you do anywhere. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I just think it's a, it's a personality thing and what you're able, you know, what you're able to do or don't do. Um, I, you know, I, my comfortable niche is energy markets. I'm comfortable there. I know it. I like to stick where I'm comfortable. It's not that I don't trade other things, you know, if something looks really good, obviously I'll trade it. I, you know, I've traded and, and during my career, I've traded everything. I, I've traded oats. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, literally I've traded every product, every futures product. I think you can possibly trade at least once. So, you know, it's not like I haven't ventured out outside of my comfort zone. I just know what works best best for me. And so what works best for me doesn't necessarily work best for someone else. It really just depends on, you know, it's absolutely a personal thing. Yeah. Uh, and everybody's got their niche for sure. Um, so pivoting a little bit, uh, it'd be great to talk to you about the oil market. Um, you know, that, as you mentioned earlier, that's been something you focused on a lot over your career. Um, so in addition to just the fact that you did well with it early with that first trade, is, is there anything else specific to the oil market that, that really draws you and, and holds your attention? 
I think I just find it really fascinating. My background is in, um, in at university, actually. I studied um, political science and IR with an emphasis on Middle Eastern politics. Oh, there so you go. <laughs> I think what, you know, I think that it it sort of just brought everything together for me. The politics in general are fascinating to me. Um, it's something that, you know, I, I have a degree in. So it all just kind of fit together for me. And do you think that the market, the the oil market in general, I mean, when I was sat down in analyst training um, at the bank I worked at, you know, right out of college, the the guy that ran this, uh, the uh, seminar, you know, on commodities was basically like, look, commodities are all about geopolitics, especially energy, like that's what it is. And that's sort of how people express views is, is relative to this, you know, geopolitical sphere. It feels like, well, that's still true to a degree that the modern oil market has pivoted a lot away from where that was five, 10 years ago um, with the advent of U.S. shale production, with the sort of diversification and even in places like Canada. Um, do you think that's true or is that an incorrect reading that the no, oil market is? I mean, I definitely think the, the oil market is definitely more diversified than it was, obviously, 10 years ago. I mean, 10 years ago, what you know when I first started in the, it was OPEC it was OPEC everything was about OPEC right you know in a lot of ways there are well let's just say there's a lot more countries involved now and there's a lot more diversification and there's a lot more innovation and there's a lot more technology that sort of changed the dynamics of the political situation with the oil industry so as we sit here today um one of the sort of big uh themes geopolitically that's going on in the middle east right now is what's been going on with saudi arabia and specifically uh the sort of rise of Mohammed bin salman and the transition of power from one generation to another within the house of saud um do you follow that closely at all do you think that has a lot of impact on the market day to day i mean from again i'm not as steeped in it as you are, but it, it seems to me there's been something of a disconnect between the level of geopolitical flux that's underway there, um, not to mention stuff like Syria or Iran. That's like a whole nother thing. Um, right. But uh, do you do you feel like that has been sort of looked past by the market or, or isn't driving prices? Well, I think that's, you know, I mean, definitely this transition that's going on in Saudi Arabia is, you know, socially a huge transition for them. Um, as far as the oil market's concerned, I mean, one could argue, yes, it matters and oil prices have risen because of that and because this IPO and things like that. But I still think that... That that just so for people that uh, that aren't aware, that's the Saudi Aramco IPO you're referencing, I assume. Correct. Um, yeah, the state oil company in Saudi Arabia. Sorry, go ahead. Sorry. So, yeah. So, I mean, one could, one could argue that way. But, you know, from... Everything that I know and I can gather, I mean, the markets are still a little, even though oil prices are up and, and things like that, I mean, I think the markets are still a little um, jittery and apprehensive about what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Not necessarily because of the social change and the change of power that's going on there, but, you know, also sort of a, between countries as far as, you know, is a war going to erupt? You know, there's, you know... It, Tensions are very tight right now. We just had uh, Qatar issues. There's Yemen. There's you know every country right in that sphere right now is kind of on a tightrope, so to speak. <laughs> um, and it, it kind of feels like anything could erupt any minute. Everything is calm right now, as much as it can be. But 
Um, so I think our, people are walking sort of a fine line as far as what to expect out of uh, that region right now. That makes sense. And, I, you know, just as a little bit of background, I guess the the um, interplay between Iran and Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia and its other neighbors that aren't necessarily um, in Riyadh's pocket as much is something that I think a lot of people in the West don't really sort of have a good understanding of and don't really follow closely. So it's really interesting to sort of watch some of this stuff and learn about some of this stuff as it's happening. And, you know, not and sort of have this drama playing out in slow motion and you you could sort right. of see it coming to either like a total anticlimax and like oh this isn't anything nothing's actually going to happen here um or having having it come to some big climax where it's like oh actually like you know saudi arabia and israel are going to start a war with iran or um you know maybe there's a civil war in or maybe a war between turkey and you know kurdish people in in syria or you know whatever and all of this stuff could have a big impact so it's it's so fascinating i mean but you have to you know there are you know just a little bit of backgrounds i mean these are all warring tribes right and so i mean basically it's all about tribes these are all warring tribes and all warring factions and you know they're all split up into countries that are intermixing all these tribes and so there's always been sort of a tension it's like a tightrope so you're just you know i don't know how a better way to sort of explain that other than you know we're walking a very fine tightrope now they've managed to walk along this tightrope very well for you know the last hundred years now you know are, are we going to still be able to keep doing that or are things going to change and I think that's another reason people are sort of watching uh, these events in Saudi Arabia because with this new generation, MBS, you know, how is this social change going to affect everything? I personally think that it probably will lower tensions because you sort of have um, the less conservative view ruling Saudi Arabia than the than the more conservative view. Right. But it's easy to push back on that and say, yeah, but at the same time, Mohammed bin Salman's trying to interfere in the politics of Lebanon, Yemen, you know, more obliquely in Iran. Like he's basically trying to start a Shia Sunni war in the Middle East. Like, you know, that's being a little bit hyperbolic, but not aggressively hyperbolic. I think that's not very far from the truth, right? So. No, 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 no. I totally agree. I mean, it's hard. I. I I'd rather stick to trading than politics. Oh, of course, but yeah. <laughs> oh, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, right now it's a tightrope. And so I think that people are generally, you know, watching the Middle East and to see what's going to happen. The thing is, is that these other things that are happening, you know, with U.S. shale, with um, the oil sands in Canada and things like that, is that there are there is now actually, you know, viable other sources other than OPEC for oil which I think is going to, you know, ease up on, you know, um, the oil cartel. And I put that in quotes. Yeah. And we've definitely seen that the sort of less effective uh, cartel behavior from OPEC, um, you know, in general. I mean, the the other example would be of something interesting in the Western Hemisphere is Venezuela, right, where, um, you know, they you had a you pointed out a report this week that Venezuela is trying to get back above two million barrels a day of output and it's just not going to happen right they're in the process of defaulting on sovereign and uh, oil producer oil company debt and that's a mess and they're a big chunk of global production and you know so there's a 
there's a whole bunch of moving pieces in OPEC, whereas it used to be much more of a like a, a set sort of rank. Yeah, it used to be a little bit more cohesive set of this is we're going to make the rules and this is it. You know, you go back to the 80s when, you know, we had problems before, you know, they decided this, they decided this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And so, you know, it's not really that way anymore for them. So we've talked a lot about the supply side of the oil market. How do you think about the demand side as someone that watches this really closely and trades it all the time? Do you think that um, predictions around sort of peaking oil demand because of technology are, are going to be correct? Or do you think that oil is going to still going to be important as a... Uh, you know, something that where consumption grows relative to or consumption grows along with GDP at some multiplier. And that's sort of how it will be in the future as well. Well, I think if we're talking in the near term and seeing this is where I get a little bit more macro oriented, because I think, you know, in the near term, meaning, you know, the next, you know, five, seven years, I, I don't think that we're going to have we're going to see such a, a demandant because of technology that is going to, you know, send oil prices to zero. We're not going to need oil oil anymore, right? But I do think that in a macro sense, if we're talking, you know, um, more like 15, 20, 30, 40 years, you know, down the line, that definitely these alternative uh, technologies, renewable energies, things like that, are definitely going to start taking a bite out of uh, the oil industry. You know, I think the first that's going to be is, you know, um, DM markets, obviously, emerging markets will probably take a while. I mean, we're pretty much counting on India and China right now for demand. And we have been the last couple of years. And I think that's going to continue to be so um, because, you know, we do, we are seeing these DM markets have, have a changeover. Um, and even China actually, you know, has announced that their goal is to, they stopped R&D on uh, anything oil related and everything's 100% in um, renewable energy right now. So, and electric vehicles and, and whatnot, because they obviously have internal problems like pollution and things. So I definitely think where this is headed is I definitely, I, I, I hate to call it like peak demand, just like I hated peak oil. But I mean, I definitely think that we're going to see a decline and I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing either. No, it's also worth pointing out, of course, too, that the oil uh, demand uh, picture isn't purely about transportation. I mean, the, the modern oil value chain is, you know, you have varying grades of sweet, sour, um, heavy light, and you crack it into a bunch of different stuff. And depending on your grades, you can get, you know, high, uh, hotter burning stuff that works good as gasoline or diesel. And then you also have a whole bunch of heavy stuff. You have um, things that go into making Petro plastic. Petrochemicals. Yeah, exactly. Petrochemicals, you know, that's going to be a big thing now. And you'll notice now, um, you know, Saudi Arabia, India, um, they're starting to invest heavily in petrochemical plants because they know that's probably where, you know, the future is for oils. Um, right. And that demand profile obviously is never going to, um, in volume terms, be the same as burning a bunch of oil because, I mean, you just can't possibly right. build enough plastic sheets to <laughs> make up for the... No, you know, right. But, but I, mean, I mean, but I mean, I think they, they foresee the future. And I mean, there's, you know, Saudi Arabia has just invested billions in, um, you know, new petrochemical uh, plants and things like that because, you know, they're going to have to make, a, make up somehow. I mean, they foresee the future. So, you know... If it's not going to be people with, you know, 
internal combustion engines and you know we're moving to these alternative energies you know where are they going to make their money plastics plastics aren't probably as much as people want them to go away they're probably not going going away anytime soon yeah it's a lot easier to see a substitution towards batteries for transportation than it is for plastics to something else you know there's just nothing to replace it right um, with regards to the shorter term, so where where do you see the oil market right now? We had um, about a 5.1 million barrel draw reported by API tonight um, for the second uh, week of the new year. And we've had some really strong numbers both in the weekly uh, voluntary survey that API does and also in the official numbers that the EIA does for U.S. petroleum supply. Uh, we've, we've seen huge, really, compared to the last few years, draws of crude. Um, do you, ha- How are you thinking about that particular set of data points that we've seen over the last you know, three months, six months or so? Well, I think, I mean, what most people don't understand is we are seeing these big, huge draws. However, you know, the U.S. just started basically exporting this last year. So, you you know, draws were to be expected because we never exported before. Well, not never. Let's just say we didn't officially export. Um, So to me, it's not surprising that we would see draws and things like that. And I think that um, most bigger traders realize that. And I think that, it, you know, I mean, as far as obviously we're seeing the effects of all these data points coming out, obviously, with where um, where crude oil prices are today. However, you have to understand this is also a speculative market. So, you know, what I'm looking at this market to trade, if we're talking trading wise, I'm looking at what is positioning, however extended it is, and what do I see for foresee coming up um, in order to trade this market. So in other words, you know, right now I'm looking at Houston just shut down for um, exports this week. That'll show up in next week's number. Is that weather related or? Yeah, yeah, it's weather related. But still, I mean, even um, they're still not open. You know, it's been a couple days, but even two, three, you know, days that that starts to add up, obviously. So if we can't export it right now, we're producing like crazy. We have an overloaded long boat, and then we have European refining margins that are crashing. Um, that's going to affect the European market, which will ultimately affect uh, the United States market. I mean, we have global oil flows. So when people talk about this market or the other market or whatever, and now that especially U.S. is exporting, you know, global oil flows are, are paramount to anything. Um, so you can't say this is happening in this market so much anymore, but not happening. I mean, the U.S. market kind of used to be a little bit separate from the European market because we didn't export. Now we're pretty much fully integrated into that market, even though, you know, we're talking, you know, we have two different benchmarks for um, for the U.S. and for the rest of Europe being Brent and WTI. I mean, arguably, the... The East Coast is more integrated into the European market than it is with the Gulf market in a lot of ways because of the Jones Act, right? Correct. So because you can't, because there are restrictions on the numbers of ships uh, that can move oil between U.S. ports. Correct. So, yeah. Um, so there's a. It's really easy to arb between New York Harbor and Rotterdam. It's a lot harder to arb between New York Harbor and Houston if your uh, if you don't have pipeline capacity over land. It's got to go by sea. If that's the case, then the arb can't work. So correct. 
because you have to add on because then you're adding on you have to add on transportation fees and, and whatnot. Right. Uh, just a little context for the exports number. So um, this is just using the um, EIA weeklies, which I had handy. But um, in uh, 2013, uh, the U.S. exported 2.6 million barrels of crude oil. Um, there were some ways to get around the prior restrictions on on exports. So you did see Correct. some exports. You um, can we mostly that that had to do with Mexico and with and with Canada. So it was kind of a, like if it was. In North America, that was okay. Yeah. Right. So that that number bumped up to 11.6 million barrels in uh, 2014, a uh, bit more than 25 in 2015 and 16, and then last year it was up to 50 million barrels, um, which you know that's that's a that's a huge number. A huge increase, right? right. Yeah, 100% increase year over year. Uh, when you you know think about you know, that's a measurable percentage of existing U.S. crude stocks. Right now, they're around 400 million barrels. So, um, you know, that's that's a significant chunk that never existed before. Um, I guess uh, the question I have for you is, you know, understood that um, that export number needs to be adjusted for when considering U.S. stocks. Right. My question would be is, why doesn't that say something about the global market being strong uh, relative to the U.S. and and therefore have some support for, for crude in that sort of backdoor way? Well, I mean, the reason that I would, the argument against that would be that the price differential between Brent and WTI, you know, I'm, there's a huge price difference differential right now it's actually been one of the biggest we were up to seven dollars at one point so you know if you're if you need to import light oil right um are you going to buy it at fifty dollars or are you going to buy it at fifty seven dollars right because all these other countries i mean we're talking about rent understood but all these other countries there is air air blight air you know you, i i think what people don't realize is that there aren't actually just two grades of crude oil there are many, 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 many grades of crude oil. Um, so, but still, um, the price differential is what people are looking at. So, you know, U.S. oil is relatively cheap compared to anything coming out of, um, to, or not anything. I would say most coming out of um, of the Middle East right now. So, you know, one could argue that because of price, that makes you know, U.S. crude oil more attractive. That doesn't necessarily say world demand is is strong. Yeah, J just for some context. Um, so, um, uh, Saudi Arabian super light uh, grade crude to Asia is seventy two dollars fourteen cents a barrel. Um, WTI trades for uh, like sixty four dollars a barrel. So there's definitely, I mean. Those aren't exactly the same grade. I don't think like for like, but close enough, right? To get an but idea. close enough that right, yeah. So that you get an idea of it. You know, I mean, I'm not a crude grade expert. <laughs> no, 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 no. But 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 um, good enough but, for government but, work, but, right? The, yeah, I mean, exactly. But the point is, is that the huge price differential just makes um, U.S. crude oil right now a lot more attractive. I mean, you even see this with China starting to buy U.S. crude oil. And, and you, if you think about the logistics of getting crude oil to China, that's very expensive as well. So the fact that they're willing to pay um, those transportation expenses, I mean, just to ship it there is 
twice what it would be to ship it from Middle East. So the price has must be that attractive that they're willing to add on, you know, two times the amount of shipping fees, right? Um, and global stocks have, I mean, global stocks are declining too. It's it's worth pointing out. Um, so, uh, you, I mean, there's as anybody that's really involved with the oil market will be able to tell you there's as many data sources as you can imagine. <laughs> but just using like just yeah, using I, the IEA numbers, the um, global stock picture, we're down to uh, the lowest since uh, November of 2015. By their measure in the Americas, uh, we're not quite to that low. So you could argue that you know there's there's um, more demand outside the Americas that's reducing crude stockpiles than than in the Americas. I mean. This is one of the fascinating things about crude markets, though, is that, you know, there's so many different ways to look at it. You can argue it from any angle you want. Right. We could be here all day. Pretty much. Right. No, that is absolutely true. And I can argue both sides. I mean, I have my personal what I, my personal beliefs are, but, you know, I'm not so narrow minded as to not be able to see um, the other side of the argument. And, you know, I think that's how it should be sort of when you're. Um, having a debate about anything anyway is you, you need to know pretty much, you know, you need to understand what the other side of the argument is as well. Of course. And I think and just, you know, to move the conversation in a slightly different direction, that's really obvious. That attitude is really obvious in your Twitter account. Like, you know, you love arguing stuff back and forth and like having discussions and seeing new information and stuff. But I, it's funny. I see you regularly say like, guys, like, just calm down. Like, we can all have different opinions and it's okay. Like, right. <laughs> right. Well, because, you know, I mean, all of these data points and all of it, there are so many sources that you can get data points. And there are so many, you know, even with OPEC and, you know, their monitoring committee um, and things like that. I mean, we have secondary sources, third sources, we have first source. I mean, there are so many different sources. So the the thing is, is that all these other countries do not have a system like the United States does. They don't have an, an EIA. They don't have a central government that people report to. And here are the numbers and these are the numbers, right? The numbers get kind of fuzzy when you're outside of the United States and they don't report weekly like the United States does. So, you know, it's kind of, you know, there are a lot of different data points. A lot of them are, you know, sometimes there are vast differences between first and secondary sources and things like that. I mean, so that's also something to factor in when you're kind of looking at the market in general is that, you know, other countries just don't have the reporting system that, say, the United States does. Yeah, it, there's a lot of groping in the dark um, that goes on. So um, with regards to uh, equities here, I mean, I know you trade a lot of S&P futures. Uh, how do you feel about the market right now, um, given the run we've had to start the year? I mean, it's it's been... Crazy. It's been pretty, yeah. I mean, it's I, sitting here looking at their price action every day. Like, you know, I am not the guy that's out there talking about how equities are overvalued and this is all a bubble and whatever. Like, that's a I'm whole type, and that is that is not my type. But it's been pretty crazy, right? Right. It's definitely been. I mean, usually you see. I mean, there's definitely usually you see beginning of the year buying, right? Because you know, bunch closed out and year. They go on vacation, they come back, you, you definitely, you know, they start entering the market again. So you do see, you know, you do see a, generally, you know, the first part of the year, you see this market surge. Um, but, I, you know, I will say that it's, it, we have run up quicker and faster than I thought and without any kind of relief. Like generally you need like some pullbacks to like let the air out for a second so that it can continue higher, right? Yeah, there hasn't been a but, hint of that in a long time. 
Yeah, no, none. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, I think the equity markets are, um, I, I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, I think we're kind of seeing the side effects of QE. We're seeing, um, you know, central banks being more uh, active in the markets, uh, SMB, BOJ, you know, we, we're well aware that they are uh, buying equities. So I think we're, you know, everybody's trying to compare this to, 1987 or, you know, and, and I just don't think that you can place that comparison because I think that the chart may look the same, but the extenuating circumstances, the things behind the market are totally different. But it's interesting we've seen this huge ramp when both the ECB and the um, Fed have, you know, moved away from expansion of buying, you know, at right. the margin, right? Um, now, granted, very tentatively, like it's not it's not like we've seen a sudden stop, let alone selling of um, asset right. purchase portfolios, but definitely at the margin in the last three to six months, you've seen less right. get pumped in. Um, so, you know, I, and I've always been sort of a little bit skeptical about the argument that um, equity prices are directly affected by quantitative easing. Um, but, you know, regardless, like you would have thought if, you know, the if you were going to assign um, an impact to central banks in, in recent price action, you would have thought, you know, just sort of a tabula rasa that, oh, well, they're going to buy less, so that should have a less positive impact. But it's yeah, been the total right. opposite um, in terms of what the market's done. Now, we've also, we've had U.S. tax reform, and we've had some stuff going on. You know, global economic growth looks as good as it's looked in years. So there's, there's you know, the dollar's been weaker. There's been a bunch of stuff that, okay, well, you know, you put it all together and sort of would be positive for equity prices, but the, the relentlessness and just this constant everyday higher, you know, no relief, it's wild. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, I've never seen, and, and I think, you know, I mean, the people that I've talked to that have been, you know, trading this for, you know, a lot longer than me, like, you know, 30, 40 years, haven't seen a market like this. So, um, I, I mean, I don't want, there's not much to say. I just don't know, you know, it's just, and I just, I watch order flow all day long on this, you know, for intraday wise and if you watch the order flow i mean it's it's consistent buying i mean it's it just hasn't stopped so it's not you know um and my and by order flow i mean i'm watching actual you know purchases and sells if you're not an order flow trader <laughs> Yeah, so this is sorry. This is um in the in the futures markets you can see what the order book looks like. Right. Um, you know, you can see where people have buy orders in and sell orders in above and below the the current mid and so you can get a feel for that. Right. So and so I watch this all day long and I'm watching, you know, even at market market orders are really what move the market, but I mean just watching um uh, just watching the order flow is it's truly amazing like every dip that gets spots now sometimes those people get washed out but you know um but every dip really does get pot <laughs> it's it's completely incredible i mean even we had a you know down day yesterday what 30 points um but you know still people were still trying to buy those dips so you know eventually you know you start seeing these larger orders and you know i mean you can kind of tell because i i have things filtered out that i can kind of see when you know um thousands of orders or thousands of buy orders go through not just a, not 
retail traders. Um, but yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, it's, it's uh, the sentiment is 100%, go for it. <laughs> we always like to close out our discussion with a little segment called Trading Rich or Trading Cheap. Um, you know, we may throw a couple market things in here. We may, um, we may talk about some other stuff, but, uh, I guess we could start out with one that's related to different grades of crude oil today. Stephen Pelos, the governor of the bank of Canada noted that, uh, the, that Canada wasn't benefiting as much from higher oil prices because benchmark Canadian crudes were way cheaper relative to WTI or Brent than they had been in the past. So little tie in there to your to your commodity interest, but I, I'm wondering as someone that lives in Canada, do you think the Canadian economy is trading rich or trading cheap right now? Uh, as far as oil is concerned? Just in general. Um, I would say trading cheap right now. So you, you think there's upside? Definitely. Why do you say that? Um, I, I definitely think that there's upside to it because I think it's been beat down so much. And I think that, you know, I, I can say specifically crude related, um, you know, it's really a transportation issue as far as, you know, what is concerned in the, in the Canadian crude market. So I would say, that you know, I think oil stocks and uh Oil in general has a lot of upside to it in the Canadian market. I had to tie it into what I trade because I don't really watch. I don't really watch all of the Canadian markets, to be honest. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, not a big deal. I'm sure crude traders down here don't spend all their time watching um, watching the dollar versus euro or something like right. that. So not a problem there. <laughs> um, you like to spend some time in the kitchen. Um, we. <laughs> You occasionally post some great food pics, um, and I, I myself also love cooking. Um, so, do you think the home cook is trading rich or trading cheap? The home cook, oh, trading cheap, undervalued. Why is that? Um, because anything is cooking related is undervalued, in my opinion. It's it's really great to like you know take this like pile of stuff that you know hypothetically you could eat but oh man it wouldn't taste good and then you do you know work some magic with heat and right? all of a sudden you've got this like amazing thing that just tastes so good. I mean the thing about <laughs> you posted like a buffalo wing recipe literally so good I tried it people at home look at his feed try it it's so good I'll, I'll have to I'll have to include that in the episode notes. <laughs> The key is baking them beforehand. You got to bake them before you put them in the oil. People don't realize this. It's very important. Uh, it was so good. Highly recommend. Well, I'm glad you got to try that. Um, you also appear, I mean, for someone that spent a lot of their life in LA, you appear to really handle cold climates pretty well. I'm like, I'm frankly <laughs> shocked by this and really impressed. So do you think living in chilly places is trading rich or trading cheap? I recently, or a couple years ago, moved to North Carolina from New York. So you know, I, I'm I'm on the other side of I think what you're gonna say, but um, do you think living in the cold is trading rich or trading cheap? Trading cheap. Tra living in the cold is amazing. I love snow. I love skiing. You guys are missing out if you think the South is all about. <laughs> <laughs> Where do you ski near Montreal? You don't ski on uh, on so, Mount Royal, do you? No, actually, I haven't skied uh, Montreal yet. Um, you, know, I I grew up with uh, basically West. West skiing, you know, Colorado, Tahoe, um, air, 
if in a pinch in LA. <laughs> so, um, you know, I know I realize it's probably a lot different kind of snow because it's nice and soft and fluffy out there. <laughs> um, but still, I, I'm a winter person, I guess. So I think guys, you guys are missing out on the snow. However, I will say, and actually, you know, the summers here are amazing, so. Yeah, you don't get the humidity. Although, I, you know, we do have some snow down here right now. There's six inches of snow on the ground once in Winston-Salem as we're recording this, so. Oh, are you feeling like home again? A little bit, a little bit. And I, it's funny, too. You're getting a little nostalgic? I guess skiing up there, you're probably not going to have quite the same elevation issues that they do out in Colorado. So I was out in Colorado over New Year's, and we went skiing. And the first run, I hit an ice patch in the middle of carving and had, like, a double ejection and had to like you know <laughs> climb through the snow at the edge of the run and like my feet are sinking in and my skis like a little ways up the hill and like you know it, it wasn't tons of powder so it's not like it should have been that hard but at you know 12,000 feet I was dying <laughs> so, well yeah I mean yeah because your lung capacity is like <laughs> yeah I almost passed out on trying to put my skis back on so luckily don't have to deal with that down here either um that's true you're like at sea level <laughs> yeah definitely so i know you're a cat person um uh, and cats are cats are trading cheap well Everybody I, that's not what i was going to ask you because that's too easy i know what the answer to that's going to be what i'm going to ask you instead is uh trading rich or trading cheap the cats rival the dog oh that's harder because it's hard to dislike dogs even if you're a cat person I know that's such an unfair question because I love dogs too. I mean, I don't want one, but I do <laughs> like other people's. <laughs> um, so I, I gotta call a tie on both of those or trading cheap. Everyone should own a pet. I agree. It changes your life in the best possible way. Well, that wraps it up for us. Uh, Tracy, thanks so much for joining us on BespokeCast. It was great to have, have you on as our first guest for 2018. A really interesting perspective on oil markets, trading, and uh, we'll have to talk again soon. Yeah, definitely. Thank you again for having me on, and um, good luck, everyone. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespoke Cast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes Store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit bespokepremium.com and follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. Our research includes reports, analysis, commentary, and data sets sent out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music featured in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2017, Bespoke Investment Group, LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources Bespoke Investment Group, LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group, LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.